If you would turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, we'll continue our study there. You know, many times when we want to accomplish something or to become accomplished at something, we look for a role model to follow. A young person example, maybe in college or fresh out of college, looks to a successful business person because they want to succeed in their own business endeavors. Or those that want to excel in athletics look to be trained by someone who has succeeded in that particular sport at the highest levels. It's common and, in fact, wise for us to look for role models to follow in our pursuits in life. But I fear that when it comes to being a husband, many men plan to either figure it out as they go or just follow a worldly ideal of what that means. Many men just assume that they will inherently know how to be a husband. After all, they fell in love with this person They enjoy this person. They share a special bond. They're happy. They're content. So how hard could this really be? Others, either either consciously or unconsciously, begin to follow after some culturally accepted ideal of the perfect husband. The problem with that approach, of course, is that the culture can't make up its mind as to what the ideal husband is. My parents grew up with John Wayne as the ideal man's man, a man of few words, honest, but rough and tough and ready to fight at a moment's notice. And he seemed to apply that uh, kind of mentality to being a cowboy as well as romance. Then, of course, later on, you had men that came along like George Clooney, handsome, soft-spoken, witty, romantic, sure, at times, He was a compulsive gambler and a thief, but look at that smile. (laughs) Then, of course, you have movies today that commonly present husbands as passive, ignorant men who would be largely incapable of succeeding in life if it weren't for their exceptionally capable and independent wives. The problem, of course, is that none of these worldly standards come close to what the Bible teaches that a husband should be. And men, if we want to be truly godly husbands, then we have to understand that it's not magically going to happen to us, and there is no worldly ideal that we can follow that will lead us there. The scriptures give us a standard, an ideal standard that only in following that standard can we truly become the godly husbands that hopefully we as Christian men desire to be. There is one standard laid out in Scripture, and it doesn't matter if you, it doesn't matter your personality, your age, your IQ, your athleticism, your pay grade, or your physique. God has said this is the standard, a one size fits all for every Christian husband. It's our responsibility then to know what the Scriptures say and to commit ourselves to following the things that the Scripture says in increasing measure. So that will be our endeavor this morning in Colossians chapter 3, verse 19. And men, it's my prayer that that as we study these words, that God will get a hold of our hearts and cause us to be more resolutely committed to being godly husbands and godly men in general, both in the home and in the church. Before we get there, though, let me say a quick word to those who are unmarried today. I realize that, that that is the case for many in our congregation. And it's tempting to think, well, this is a marriage 
series from Colossians, and so it really doesn't apply to me, and I'll just kind of check out. The truth is it does apply to you in two crucial ways. First of all, uh, some of you may desire to be married one day if the Lord would have that, and if that's the case, then this is an opportunity for you to be, begin applying the principles that we're learning and to begin living out the, the characteristics of a godly wife and a godly husband in your normal everyday life so that you are prepared for that if the Lord would allow. But secondly, even if you say, no, I think marriage is not for me, you are a member of the local body of believers, which means you're going to have friends and other members in the church in your life who are married, And, you know, you don't have to be married to encourage someone to be the kind of husband or wife they need to be. You just need to know what the scriptures say. And so this is an opportunity for you to learn better how to come alongside, how to pray for them and encourage them in the truth. And so it's my prayer that God will use these principles and truths both both last week and this week to encourage all of us no matter what stage of life we're in. Now, I introduced this series last week in Colossians 3.18 Um, as Paul begins a study of the Christian family. And this begins in verse 18 and runs all the way down through chapter 4, verse 1. Let's read that section of Scripture together, beginning in Colossians 3, 18, where we were last week. Paul says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he's done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Now quickly, I'm going to have the outline there on the screen of these verses. It's really a simple outline as Paul addresses the, the different relationships within the home, uh, particularly at this time period, which we said last week would have likely included servants and masters. And that's why in every list in the New Testament where Paul or someone deals with the home, they include these categories, the marriage relationship, the parent-child relationship, and then servants and masters. And last week we made two uh, sort of overarching observations about the list as a whole that are important to keep in mind again this morning. First of all, notice that the marriage relationship is primary. In every list uh, in the scriptures, it begins with the marriage relationship. That is to be the primary relationship in the home. Secondly, we notice that order in the home is God's good design. That is to say that each one of these lists begins with the person that God has has called to submit to the authority of another, and then secondly, after that, the one that's been delegated authority. It is not degrading, therefore, to think of the home as a place where there is structure, where there is order, uh, even in the sense of authority. That is by God's design. It is good. It is for our edification and protection. 
Then last week in verse 18, in God's instruction specifically to wives, we saw two things. The command to wives, which was to submit willingly to your husband. And then the motivation for that command, of course, is the honor of Christ. Now, moving on from that, if you weren't here last week, certainly go back. I encourage you to listen to that because it plays into our message today. But we're going to turn our attention to verse 19 now and God's instruction specifically to Christian husbands. Look again at verse 19. It says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Simply put, this is the theme of this verse. Christian husbands must intentionally cultivate genuine love for their wives. Christian husbands must intentionally cultivate genuine love for their wives. In this one little verse, Paul gives us two commands that really frame up the role of the husband. The first command is the command that we would expect because it really is the primary command given to husbands throughout the New Testament. And so we're going to spend the, the majority of our time there and then turn our attention to the second command. So command number one here is very simple. Husbands, we are to cultivate love. Cultivate Love, verse 19, husbands, love your wives. Now, of all the instructions in the New Testament that Paul gives to husbands, it's love that continues to rise to the top. Love is to be the hallmark of every Christian husband's relationship with his wife. If, if you want to boil it down to one word that should describe the way you think about and speak about and treat your wife, it is this word, love. Now, initially, our temptation is probably to think that the husbands get the better end of the deal here, right? I mean, the last week, the wives are commanded to submit to their husband's authority, and here, the husbands are simply commanded to love their wives. And it may, on the surface, appear to be a much simpler, uh, more natural command. But that's only because we have been conditioned to think about love in an unbiblical way, in a cultural way. Love is a very popular idea in our world, in our culture, and really in every culture. There are romantic poems and, and, and plays and dramas and movies throughout every culture celebrating the idea of love. In almost every culture, love is considered a virtue. The problem is the word love is used in, an, in a variety of ways, often with different definitions. And so we have to make sure that when we are thinking about this command, that we're defining the word the way that Paul intends. You know, in the English language, the word love is very flexible. For example, I can use the word this way. I can say legitimately that I love coffee. It's a true statement. I can also say I love the Dallas Cowboys. Also a true statement. I love this church. I love my, my children and my wife. And I love the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's perfectly appropriate for me to use that same word for each one of those things, and you instinctively know, as a native English speaker, that I mean it in different ways, right? That, that there are different levels of, of seriousness and depth. I hope you understand that I love the Lord more than coffee, and more than I love my wife more than coffee. And the, the issue is really the definition of the word, because in our culture, the the word love is most often thought of as a feeling or an emotion. When we say we love something, we mean I feel really good 
when I'm with that person or when I'm doing that thing. It makes me happy on the inside. That's why people will use phrases like, we fell in love. Or, unfortunately, we fell out of love. What are these, what's a person saying when they say, we fell out of love? What they're saying is, I used to have really strong, positive feelings and emotions with this person. Now I don't. So the feelings are gone, therefore the love must have gone as well. I fell out of love. Now if we bring that very common understanding to our interpretation of this passage, we will entirely miss Paul's point. If that's what he means by love, then you're right. Husbands got the easier end of the deal. They're just supposed to follow their natural emotions to feel a certain way about their wife. If that's all it means, then yeah, that's pretty easy. But even just the grammar, here we go with grammar again, hang with me. But even just the grammar behind the word love is instructive for us. Because the word love, the command here, is a present active command. Let's talk about each of those three words. It's present tense. I say this almost every week. But in Greek, in the present tense, it indicates what? Ongoing action, continual action. So there's our first clue. This kind of love that a husband is to have for his wife is to be continual. It's to be descriptive of the way that he thinks, speaks, and acts towards his wife every moment of every day. It's continual. But not only that, it's active, meaning it's an active choice of the will, that the husband is not only to do this continually, but he's to make a choice to, to willfully love his wife in an ongoing way. And then finally, of course, it is an imperative, meaning it's a command. It's not optional. Paul is is not saying, men, when you feel like it, consider this. He's saying, men, choose to actively, day in, day out, moment by moment, set your love upon your wife. That's what he's saying to us here. The simplicity of the command is actually helpful for us and instructive for us because there's no caveat. He, He doesn't list Uh, any of the the things in our wife as the motivation. He doesn't say, men, when your wife is fill in the blank, love her. He just says, husbands, love your wives. Love your wives. Now, if we just took a definition of the Greek word, this would be the definition of love. It's to have a warm regard for and interest in another, to cherish, have affection for, or to love. So adding that definition to the things that we've already seen just in the grammar helps us discover exactly what it is that Paul is commanding of us. He's saying, husbands, I want you to choose as an act of your will to daily intentionally have warm regard for your wife, to take interest in her, to cherish her, to have affection for her, to set your love upon her without mentioning any prerequisite in the character of our wives. Now this is key for our understanding. I said this last week, and if you don't hear anything else that I say in these two messages, please hear this, because it really is the key. The roles that God has given to wives and husbands are independent of one another. 
Let me say that again. The roles that God has given to wives and husbands in marriage are independent of one another. What do I mean by that? I mean that God holds the wife accountable for her role independent of her husband, and God holds the husband accountable for his role independent of his wife. That is, it's not based upon how well your spouse is doing at their role. It has nothing to do with that. Although sometimes we make it about that, don't we? But that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying, husbands, I am commanding you by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ that you commit yourself to actively loving your wife when she's at her best and when she's at her worst. The command stands, love your wife. MacArthur puts it this way. He says, a husband is not commanded to love his wife because of what she is or is not. He's commanded to love her because it is God's will for him to love her. It is certainly intended for a husband to admire and be attracted by his wife's beauty, winsomeness, kindness, gentleness, or any other positive quality or virtue. But though such things bring great blessing and enjoyment, they are not the bond of marriage. If every, listen to this, if every appealing characteristic and every virtue of his wife disappears, a husband is still under just as great an obligation to love her. That is what Paul is saying, that we're to have an unwavering commitment to intentionally love our wives. What's interesting here is that Paul's command last week for wives to submit to their husbands would not have raised a single eyebrow in the church in his day. It does in our day, but it didn't in his day. That was, that was culturally accepted, believer, unbeliever, that's just how it was. That's how people thought of the role of a wife. But you know what would have raised some eyebrows? This command. Husbands, love your wives. Douglas Moose says this, requiring wives to submit to husbands, as we've noted, matches widespread Greek and Jewish teaching about marriage. Requiring husbands to love their wives does not. So Paul was calling the men of the church to step out of the cultural norm and to willingly choose to love their wives in a way that was different from the normal pattern of life of the unbeliever. And it's in this environment, men, that our wives are to submit to us. It is Paul's intention that the home life is one where a wife is in submission to a husband who is covering her with continual love an environment where the husband is cherishing her. That's the environment in which Paul intends for this to take place. We are to make it a joy. We're to make it easy for our wives to want to submit to our authority because of the way we continually love them. Now, there's something interesting about this word that I want to add, and that is the exact word that Paul uses for love, Some of you may be familiar with the fact that there are multiple Greek words for love. Uh, we have to be careful as we talk about that because some have made too much of that. Uh, there are different words for love in Greek. And, and at times, depending on the context, they can talk about different kinds of human love. But really it's the context that determines the way a word is used. The noun form of this word in Greek is one you're probably familiar with. Agape. Anybody ever heard that word before? 
It's, it, if you know a Greek word, that's probably one of the words you know. Agape. This is the verb form. That's a noun. This is the verb form of that same word. What's interesting is that Paul uses the exact same word for love in his letter to the Ephesians. Now, several times we have looked at Ephesians alongside Colossians because, remember, Paul wrote both letters in the same prison cell. And so there, there are, there's much overlap, many parallel passages. And what's helpful about Ephesians here is Paul goes on to define exactly what he has in mind when he says, husbands love your wives. So I want us to take a few moments, turn over to Ephesians chapter 5, and Ephesians chapter 5 is going to help inform us as we think about how to live out this command. Ephesians chapter 5 is probably the more famous passage on marriage. We're going to begin in verse 22, although the, the instruction to husbands begins specifically in verse 25. But for context, begin in verse 22. Ephesians 5:22 says, "Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything." Now verse 25. "Husbands, love your wives." Now that that's just identical cut and paste it's right there in Colossians. That's our command. But now listen to what Paul goes on to say. It says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless." So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Now, in verse 22, as you noticed, he begins with the instructions to wives that we looked at last week. But in verse 25 is where I want us to pay attention. Because beginning in verse 25, down through the rest of that section, he gives us two overarching descriptions of what he has in mind when he says, husbands, love your wives. This is key for us to understand. Two descriptions that will sort of fill this out for us. The first description, Paul says, is in verses 25 to 27 there, and it's this, the husband's to love his wife as Christ loves the church, as Christ loves the church. Now, you'll notice in those verses, verses 25 to 27, that he even spells that out for us in greater detail. He says, Christ is the standard of the kind of love that I'm commanding you to have. And here are two primary aspects of that kind of love. First of all, aspect number one, it's sacrificial. Sacrificial. Look at verse 25 again. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. Listen to this. And gave himself up for her gave himself up for her. The primary display of Christ's love for his church, of course, was seen on the cross. 
when he gave himself up, literally gave up his life to redeem his bride, the church. What's truly amazing about that is that earlier in Ephesians, Paul explains that it was not because of something he saw within his people that drew him to do this. But instead, in Ephesians chapter 1, in fact, just turn over there really quickly. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. This is how Paul describes why God did this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world. That's before he built the world, before he made the world, he chose us that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Why? According to the kind intention of his will and then to the praise of the glory of his grace. Why is it that, that Christ sacrificially gave himself up for his bride, the church? It was not because he said, oh, those people, they're just so lovely. I have to have them. No, he said, because I choose to. I'm going to set my love on them as an act of my will to reveal who I am. That's why he did it. And Paul is calling us as husbands to do exactly the same thing, to love our wives sacrificially. This is what Jesus said that he came to do in Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Men, let me ask you, can you say this morning with a clear conscience that you love your wife sacrificially? Do you lovingly lead her with her best interest in mind? Do you regularly and humbly sacrifice your own desires and preferences for her sake? You see, many men would immediately proclaim that they would be willing to die for their wives, while at the same time neglecting to serve her in less significant ways on a daily basis. Every request for help with the management of the home or the kids is met with an eye roll or a list of the many other things that he already does for her. You see, men, we are delegated authority by God to lead our wives, but that leadership is to be dripping with sacrificial love. And Paul says that we are to willingly choose to love our wives in this way, in this sacrificial self-sacrificing for her good kind of way. But there's another aspect of the love of Christ that Paul emphasizes here. Not only is it sacrificial, but it's sanctifying. Sanctifying, verses 26 and 27. Why did he do it? What was he trying to accomplish? Look back at verse 26. So that, for this reason, so that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So while a husband's sacrificial love for his wife should show up in practical ways, such as a, a willingness to help around the house, so, so to speak, that's not the primary emphasis of Paul's point. The sacrifice of Christ's life on behalf of his bride had one chief end, that she might be holy. That's why he did it, 
to rescue her and then to make her holy so that she could be with him forever. This is key for us to understand. Men, our love and sacrifice for our wives is to have a sanctifying influence on her life. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we have the power to sanctify our wives. We don't. God must do that work. But we are to be a continual sanctifying influence in the life of our wives by pointing her to God and by washing her with the means of sanctification, which Paul says is the word of God. He says, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. The primary means that the Holy Spirit uses to sanctify each one of us is the word of God. Paul appeals to that here. But Jesus prays the same thing in John 17, 17. He says, sanctify them, praying for his disciples. Sanctify them in the truth. And then he defines that and says, your word is truth. So men, what that means for us practically is that we have to be husbands who are personally committed to the word as as the means of growth in our own lives and then lead our wives to do the same. Our wives need to have confidence that when we lead our family, when we make a decision for our family, that we're not just making decisions willy-nilly, but we're submitting our decisions to the word of God, that we're going to the word of God to make our decisions, not just our own preferences and our own desires. So as husbands, we have the great privilege and responsibility of shepherding our wives with the truth of God's word. But here's the blunt truth of the matter. If you're not committed to the word yourself, then you cannot effectively lead your wife in the truth. Men, when's the last time your wife caught you reading your Bible? When's the last time she walked in on you praying? When's the last time she caught you laboring to memorize scripture? When's the last time she came to you with an issue in her life and instead of just giving her your opinion, you said, well, let's let's look at the scriptures together and see what what God's word would say to us. Here's a, a real question for each of us to answer as husbands. Men, is your wife's spiritual growth in Christ hindered or propelled by having you as her husband? It's an important question for us to ask ourselves. Listen, Jesus died for your wife so that she would be conformed to his holiness. And now he has said that he has entrusted to us as husbands to be a means towards that end, that we love our wives in such a sacrificial way that Christ is displayed to her and that we bring the word to bear in her life as a means that the Lord uses towards this end of her sanctification. Our wives should know that if they come to us for direction or for help with an issue in life, that our reflex is going to be to say, what does the Bible say? Man, let me warn you here not to abdicate the spiritual leadership of your home to your wife. Too many men have given up their spiritual leadership in the home and have delegated it to their wives. But men, it is you that God holds accountable for the spiritual atmosphere of your home. It is you. Even if you've delegated it, it's still God holding you accountable for the spiritual health of your family. Understand that nowhere does Paul say that every husband has to be a theologian. 
to lead their wife. I think some men get confused by that. They say, well, I don't know enough. The truth is, all you need to do is stand up and be faithful. Determine that you will be the one who most regularly calls the family to pray when difficulties or questions arise. That you will be the one who turns the family back to what the Bible says. And if you don't know what the Bible says, that you will be committed to going and finding out what the Bible says before you make a decision. You know, oftentimes men boil down spiritual leadership in the home to having family devotions. And don't get me wrong, I think having time in the Word with your family is a good thing. I'm not saying not to do that, but, but that is not what Paul is meaning here. Instead, what he's saying is that our daily thoughts, words, and actions are to be characterized by sacrificial love that has her spiritual good always at the forefront of our minds. Not for 10 or 15 minutes when we have devotions, but all day, every day. That is our purpose towards our wives. Before we, before we turn our, back, our, our, our attention back to Colossians 3, I want you to see another description that Paul gives here of the kind of love that we're to have for our wives. Not only are we to love our wives as Christ loves the church, but Paul says, interestingly, that we're to love her as we love ourselves. He says, love her as you love yourself. Look back at verse 28 of Ephesians 5. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. So here Paul takes the general command to love your neighbor as yourself that we're all familiar with, and he personalizes it to the marriage relationship and says, Husbands, I want you to love your wife the way you love your own body. The reason is because in marriage, of course, the, the Bible says that the husband and wife come together into a one flesh union. That is, in the eyes of God, they are one. So Paul says, treat her like you do your own physical body because in a real way, she is part of your physical body. God sees you as one. You know, all people naturally love themselves. If you don't believe that, then you're not on Facebook. But you know, even when we are are disappointed or, or discontent about something in life, we still love ourselves. And we display it because we take care of ourselves. Paul says, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. We show love for ourselves by the way we take care of ourselves. Let me give you an example. When's the last time that you smashed your finger? I mean, really smashed it good. How did the rest of your body respond when that happened? Of course, your body immediately wrapped around that finger, trying to protect it from further harm. And what would happen if someone ran up at that moment and wanted to touch it? It'd be a problem, wouldn't it? I'm curious, did any of you say to your finger, oh, come on, it's not that bad? I mean, I get that you're hurt and all, but this display of emotion is just too much. You're going to be just fine. Or when your finger began to throb, did you just roll your eyes and say, okay, here we go again? Of course not. Paul says, men, love your wives as you love yourself. And that boils down to, to two aspects. He says, first of all, we, we nourish ourselves, and therefore we should nourish our wives. That is, we're to provide 
for her physical needs. We provide the, the needs that she has physically, spiritually, emotionally. We, we are to willingly provide for her and protect her. Just as we respond by caring for our body, when our body says, I'm thirsty or I'm hungry, we drink something or we eat something because we, we naturally have a care for our bodies. There's a second aspect of this kind of love that Paul says. He says you're supposed to cherish her, not just nourish her, but cherish her. This is a more intimate word than nourish. In fact, the only other place in the New Testament that this word is used is in a description of how a mother tenderly cares for her child. 1 Thessalonians 2.7, he says, But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. That tenderly cares for is that cherish. Men, this means that we're to view our wives as precious. Not to see them as inferior, but as valuable. As someone who's delegated to our care. It it means that we're careful to provide for her physical needs, that we do it with joy, that we are careful to to seek to provide for her preferences as we're able and even her desires, not just her base-level needs. You know, we often can, can show this kind of love when we give our wives our undivided attention, when we ask her how she's doing and actually care and listen. When we ask her what... What's going on? How can I pray for you? What happened today? It shows up in the ways that we're careful to speak to her and speak about her in her presence and when she's gone. It often shows up in our generosity towards her financially. Are we we willing to, to do things to show our love that we care for her, that we cherish her? You know, I've met a lot of men who pride themselves in how well they take care of their wives' physical needs but who fail when it comes to this aspect of really cherishing their wives. They may feed their wife, but do they really cherish her? Men, if we asked your wife today and she were able to answer honestly, would she say, my husband, he cherishes me? Not perfectly. No one does that. She should be able to say that. Because you see, man, even in this, Paul says, Christ is our example. Why should we nourish her and cherish her? Back to Ephesians. He says, just as Christ, verse 29, also does the church because we're members of his body. When it comes to his church, Jesus Christ nourishes the church and cherishes the church. You see, man, the reason that it matters so much that we take Paul's instruction seriously is because what's at stake It's because it's not about just you and your marriage and having a happy life. It's about honoring the Lord Jesus Christ and representing the Lord Jesus Christ in our marriage. Our marriage is to display the gospel, and the role that we play in that is the role of Christ, showing the same kind of sanctifying, gracious, unmerited love that Christ has displayed towards us. When Christ came and found us, what was our condition? The Bible says we were sinners. We were dead in our sin. We had no hope of bringing ourselves to God. In fact, if you're not in Christ this morning, the Bible says that's where you are. Dead in sin, desperately in need of rescue, deserving the wrath of God. That was our condition. And yet Christ stepped into that by becoming a man, 
by living a perfect life and then sacrificing his life on the cross to pay the punishment, the penalty that we deserve, that our sins had earned, and then rising again on the third day. And now he says that anyone who will repent of their sins and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as their only hope of salvation will be saved. And what Paul says is, men, the world should see that kind of love when they watch you with your wife. Wow. What a responsibility and a privilege all at the same time. Men, do you believe the gospel? Are you amazed and overwhelmed daily at the love that God continues to display towards you? If so, then God is calling you now in the text of Scripture to look over at the wife that he's given to you and to love her in such a way that the gospel is clear. And when you're tempted to say, yeah, I, I know I'm supposed to love her like Christ loves the church, but she... In that moment, remind yourself of this. Jesus daily extends his gracious love to you every day, even though you fill in the blank. If you're in Christ, that means Jesus set his love on you when you deserved his wrath. And here's the crazy thing. He still does it. He still does it. He, he didn't just show us love at salvation but he promised to continue to daily, moment by moment, extend to us gracious love, wave after wave. And it never stops. Even when we do things that would disappoint him in the most tragic of ways, for those of us who are in Christ, what are we met with? The gracious love of Christ, even to the point of disciplining us to bring us back into fellowship with him. And that is the kind of love that Paul says we are to demonstrate towards our wives. Listen, your love for your wife is never more like Christ than when she doesn't deserve it. Even unbelievers love their wives when it's easy. Paul's not calling us to that. He's saying, husbands, love your wives it's to be a sacrificial love that promotes her sanctification that's characterized by nourishing and cherishing. In a nutshell, that's what Paul has called us to. But there's one particular sin that often gets in the way of us expressing this kind of love towards our wives. And we're going to turn our attention to that now. It's the second command, Colossians chapter 3, verse 19. We won't be able to spend as much time here, but it's crucially important because first he gives us the positive command of loving our wives and now he gives us a negative command of something that we're to avoid the second command here is to eradicate bitterness Colossians 3 verse 19 husbands love your wives and do not be embittered against them do not be embittered here is the command in this case, it's a passive command. That is, husbands, don't allow yourself to be made bitter by the sin of your wife. That, in context, that's what he's saying. When your wife doesn't submit to you in the way the Bible says, when your wife doesn't respect you in the way the Bible says or show you the love the Bible says, he says, don't allow yourself to be embittered. It's a command. It's just as strong of a command as husbands love your wives. 
Understand that if you as a husband give your effort towards loving your wife sacrificially, yet in return she doesn't reciprocate that love by respecting you and submitting to you, watch out because bitterness is lurking around the corner waiting for you. Paul says that you must determine that you will set your love on your wife regardless of her response. And when she sins against you, you will be resolute in your commitment to flee from every hint of bitterness against her. You see, bitterness is a sneaky sin of the heart. It begins with a sinful pattern of thinking about our wives. If you're looking for a justification for lashing out at your wife, bitterness is very happy to give it to you. Bitterness sees in our hearts and it shows up in our mind with thoughts like this. After all that I've done for her, this is how she treats me. Or nothing I do around here is ever enough for her. I try to do things to serve her and please her and all she can see is what I do wrong. Or I just work 10 hours of overtime to make sure that she has all that she wants and needs, and yet I come home and she's upset because I haven't finished my honeydew list. I read those in a book somewhere. I know that never happened to any of you. But men, if we're harboring those kinds of thoughts about our wives, watch out. We're on the way to bitterness, if not already there. And like other sins of the heart, bitterness brings uninvited friends to the pity party. If you don't obey Paul's command to put every hint of bitterness away, you will find yourself acting towards your wife in ways that you never thought possible. Let me give you some examples. I just, for like five minutes, thought of some some of the sins that bitterness can produce. And I came up with a list of 15 things. And this is a short list. We could go on. If you allow bitterness in your heart, expect to see these kinds of things in your relationship with your wife. Number one, a short fuse. It's ready to blow up at a moment's notice. Number two, regularly bringing up her past sins. Every time she has a critique, you're right there at the ready to zing her with all the ways she's failed you. Number three, regularly bringing up your many positive qualities. Instead of acknowledging an area of growth, you try to overwhelm her with all the positive things about yourself. Some men resort, number four, to the silent treatment. Just don't talk to her. Number five, retreating into work and hobbies or friends to avoid being home. Just stay a little later at the office. You don't have to, but it's an easy excuse. Number six, fulfilling your wife's request with outward displays of anger. You're getting it done. You're getting it done in a way that she knows that you're not real happy that you're getting it done. Number seven, speaking negatively about her to others. Joking about how overbearing she is and this and that and the other. Number eight, delegating tasks to her in an attempt to teach her a lesson. Okay, if you don't like the way I'm doing it, fine, it's yours. No, no, you got it. You go ahead. Number nine, abdicating your role of leadership to keep the peace. Fine, you just, you just do it how you want. Number 10, harshness in your words and tone. 11, an unwillingness to receive her input. 12, regularly dwelling on her faults and inadequacies, just replaying them over and over in your head. 13, Choosing sexual sin rather than putting forth the effort it takes to pursue your wife. 
14, a failure to affirm her strengths or acknowledge her successes. And finally, in extreme cases, even verbal and physical abuse. Men, this is just a small sample of examples. The truth is, bitterness is a a heart sin, and if you don't kill it, as I said before, it will lead you to express outwardly things that, that you just can't believe you just did or said. And it's all because you refuse to kill the sin of bitterness in your heart. You've got to put it to death at the seed level. Don't let it sprout. Kill it. David Garland says this. He says, any defiance or insolence on the wife's part does not cancel the husband's absolute obligation to love her. Sulking, fuming, grumbling, or worse, lashing out in verbal or physical violence, regardless of the provocation, real or imagined, is strictly forbidden. Refuse to foster bitterness in your hearts. And when you're tempted to anger or bitterness because of your wife's sin, you have to immediately put it off. You have to make a willful choice that when she sins against you and you feel that little prick of anger in your heart, that you have to remind yourself, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for me when I was sinning against him, and he calls me to love her even when she sins against me. And then you turn your mind intentionally to thanking God for his grace and intentionally dwell on the things you appreciate most about your wife. I encourage you to have at the ready at least five things that you really appreciate about your wife. No matter how difficult things may be in your marriage, you married this woman for some reason. And at one point, you thought she would really rule the world. She was wonderful. Bring those things back. What is it that you love about her? And every time that you're tempted instead to dwell on the things that that you wish were different, immediately thank God for his grace toward you and begin to thank God for what you appreciate about her. And you'll notice that bitterness begins to fade. And that list of five will go to 10 and 15 and 20. And suddenly, you're not only not bitter, but you're walking in the kind of love towards her that Christ commands. But you've got to kill bitterness. This is a high calling. What a privilege and a responsibility of playing the role of Christ in our marriage. As I said last week, we will fail at this. Have grace with one another. Your wife will fail at her role. You will fail at your role. Have grace for one another. But don't give up. Commit today, step by step, to fight to be more like Christ. And as you do, your marriage will more accurately present the gospel to the world. And so in conclusion, let me just give you a couple of things to take with you. Really a summary of what we've said. But to the husbands first, number one, evaluate your love. Evaluate your love. Can you honestly say that your love for your wife is sacrificial? Can you honestly say that it has a sanctifying influence on her life? Do you pray regularly for your wife and for her sanctification? Do you look to the scriptures for wisdom to lead your family, not just according to your preferences, but according to the word of God? Most importantly, does your love for your wife give an accurate picture to the world of the love that Christ has for the church? And men, if you really want to grow, ask your wife her thoughts. Humbly ask her, sweetie, how, I want to grow. I know I'm, I'm, not, I'm not perfect in this, far from it. 
help, give me two things. Give me two things that I could do today that would better show you the kind of love that Christ calls me to do. You humble yourself in that way. Give her the opportunity to speak and then respond with graciousness and just see how it helps your marriage grow. Secondly, search your heart for bitterness. Search your heart for bitterness. Have you allowed bitterness to grow in your heart towards your wife? Do you feel justified in your sin against your wife because of the sins she's committed against you? Loving our wives like Christ loves the church demands that we actively put bitterness to death. Cut it out of your life by God's grace. And then finally, let me say a word to wives. Just two quick things. Number one, pray for your husbands. Pray for them. Leading is not easy. Pray for the Lord to strengthen him, to give him wisdom. Pray that God would sanctify him in the truth, that he would be a godly man so that he can lead you in godliness. And then secondly, make it hard for him to be bitter. Make it hard. You can be a tangible guard against bitterness in your husband's heart. How? By willingly, lovingly submitting to his leadership with patience and love and respect, recognizing that this is hard, that he's going to screw it up. And when he messes up, it's going to affect you. But when you respond with grace and patience and kindness, you have no idea how that kills bitterness in his heart. Show him the love and respect that God calls you to when he doesn't deserve it, and you'll help him more than you'll ever know. You see, when we do this together as a team, Instead of being at odds with one another, we come together realizing we both have a role here and neither of us are going to do it perfectly, but we're going to support each other. Then we begin to make progress in our marriage. It's my prayer that the Lord would help each of us to walk more faithfully in these ways and that it would show up tangibly in our homes and in our lives. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray for everyone here today, first of all, that they would gain a deeper appreciation of the love that you have extended towards us. That really is the story. That is what we marvel at, is how perfect and faithful your love is. And God, I also pray that you would help those here who are husbands, including myself. God, help us to be godly men, to be men who are humble, who are quick to repent when we fail, and to get up and to give our maximum effort towards being the kind of husbands that you've called us to be, even when it's hard, even when our flesh is tempted to bitterness. God, help us to put that off and to put on the love of Christ, reminding ourselves of the love he's displayed towards us. God, we ask that you would help us to honor you in these ways. We ask it in the perfect name of Christ. Amen.